BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Section 5 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 2 The Walled Town and Its Streets. Part 3. Sir Robert Hales, the treasurer, was a marked man, and his manor house at Highbury was burnt and utterly destroyed. Jack Straw's castle, which was built on the site of the Highbury castle, retained the name of the second leader of the revolt almost to our own time. Later in the same day, the priory of the Order of St. John at Jerusalem, at Clerkenwell, of which Hales was prior, was burnt by the men of Essex, who in their march to London had previously attacked the Priory of the Order at Cressing, Essex. Stowe informs us that the commons passed through the city and did no harm. They took, quote, nothing from any man, but bought all things at a just price, and if they found any man with theft, they beheaded him, End quote. This, however, was soon changed. First, they were joined by the dangerous classes in the city, who were glad of an opportunity of punishing their enemies the Flemings by the riverside and the lawyers of the temple. Then the prisons of Fleet, Newgate, and Westminster were broken open, and hordes of rascality were added to those contributed by the marshalsea. To add to these elements of disorder, the men became drunk with wine supplied by the rich citizens, and we hear no more of restraints. Gross outrages against property and life now follow one another rapidly. Much damage was done in Fleet Street and the Temple. The rolls and records of the lawyers were burned or otherwise destroyed. The royal account book suffered in the same way. Stowe relates that the insurgents, quote, determined to burn all court rolls and old muniments, that the memory of antiquities being taken away their lords should not be able to challenge any right on them from that time forth. End quote. Not content with destroying the documents, they desired to destroy the producers of documents. Again, Stowe tells us that, quote, They took in hand to behead all men of law, 
as well apprentices as utter barristers and old justices. With all the jurors of the country whom they might get into their hands, they spared none whom they thought to be learned, especially if they found any to have pen and ink, they pulled off his hood, and all with one voice crying, Hail him out, and cut off his head. End quote. The only place of safety was the tower, and here the young king watched the flames in several parts of the city, and listened to the turbulent cries of the mob on all sides of him. Just beneath, on the east side, near St. Catherine's Hospital, was an encampment of the rebels who clamoured for the murder of the Chancellor and others who had taken refuge in the tower. This was an eventful day for all, crowded with actions more than enough to terrify a boy suddenly called upon to act. The councillors were hurriedly called together, and after considering the serious dangers which surrounded them, agreed to a policy of concession. The rebels, however, were invited to meet the king at Mile End on the following day. On Friday the 14th of June, the king and his court went to Mile End to hear the demands of Wat Tyler and his followers. We learn from the Stowe manuscripts, referred to above, that when they arrived, the commons came to the king, and all knelt to him, saying, quote, Be welcome, our lord King Richard, if it please you, and we will not have any other king than you. And Wat Tyler, master and leader of them, praying to him, the king, on the part of the commons, that he would suffer them to take and have all traitors that were against the king and the law. End quote. The demands are recited as follows in the manuscript. Quote, that no man should be a serf by birth, nor do homage or any manner of suit to any lord. No man should be a serf to any man except by his own will, and by covenant duly indentured. To give fourpence for an acre of land. End quote. Stowe gives the demands in fuller detail. Quote, the first that all men should be free from servitude and bondage, so as from thenceforth there should be no bondmen. The second, that he should pardon all men of what estate soever, all manner actions and insurrections committed, and all manner treasons, felonies, transgressions, and extortions by any of them done, and to grant them peace. The third, that all men from thenceforth might be enfranchised to buy and sell in every country, city, borough town, fair, market, and other place within the realm of England. The fourth, that no acre of land holden in bondage or service should be holden but for fourpence, and if it had been holden for less aforetime, it should not hereafter be enhanced. End quote. Stowe adds, quote, these and many other things they required. Moreover, they told him, the king, that he had been evilly governed till that day, but from that time he must be governed otherwise. End quote. After consultation with his courtiers, the king conceded everything asked by Wat Tyler. They agreed that serfage should be abolished, and that all servile dues should be commuted for a rent of fourpence per acre and a general pardon was pronounced on all. Clerks were set to work to draw up charters of liberation and pardon in proper legal form for every village and manor, as well as for every shire. 
while these arrangements were going on, the soldiers, who could have kept the tower with ease, were ordered, or at least permitted, to let in the mob. This appears to have been part of the agreement, and we cannot but brand it as a wicked compact, as it was clearly the duty of the court to protect its servants. The unfortunate Leg, the farmer of the poll tax, was murdered, and a learned friar, the friend and adviser of John of Gaunt, was torn in pieces as a substitute for his patron. In the chapel, Archbishop Sudbury and Hales were torn from the altar and hurried to Tower Hill, where their heads were struck off and straightway placed on London Bridge. John Ball was said to be among the first who entered the tower, and to have directed the outrages. The mob suffered the Princess of Wales to escape by boat, when she went to the Queen's wardrobe, which had been given to Queen Philippa, and was afterwards called the Tower Royal in the Vintry Ward. In some accounts, it is said that she went to the wardrobe in Carter Lane, but this is a mistake. The King, after his return from Mile End, joined his mother at the Queen's wardrobe. On Friday and Saturday, as they received their charters, the bulk of the insurgents left London and returned to their homes, leaving the residue and more dangerous masses behind them. Mr. Trevelyan relates how the King and his nobles rode out from the Queen's wardrobe through Ludgate and Temple Bar, passed along the strand by the smouldering ruins of the Savoy to Westminster. This was on Saturday the 15th of June. The royal party was met at the doors of the Abbey by a sorrowful procession of monks in penitential garb, bearing the cross before them. The king dismounted and kissed the cross. The nobles, the courtiers and men-at-arms entered the church and performed with unusual fervour the acts of piety. The reason why the monks were in this subdued condition was owing to the fact that a violation of sanctuary had just occurred. The insurgents had marched on Westminster, broken open the exchequer, destroyed the books and records, and violated the sanctuary. Richard, or John Inworth, warden of the Marshalsea, after the destruction of that prison, had fled for refuge to Westminster Abbey. On their arrival, the mob found him at the shrine of Edward the Confessor, and having torn him away, carried him back to the city, where his head was struck off on the block in Cheapside. Stowe gives a vivid account of the king's visit to the abbey. Quote, the same day, June 15th, after dinner, about two of the clock, the king went from the wardrobe called the Royal in London toward Westminster, attended only by the number of two hundred persons, to visit St. Edward's Shrine and to see if the commons had done any mischief there. The abbot and convent of that abbey, with the canons and vicars of St. Stephen's Chapel, met him in rich copes with procession, and led him by the charnel house into the abbey, then to the church, and so to the high altar, where he devoutly prayed and offered. After which he spake with the anchor, anchoret, to whom he confessed himself. Then he went to the chapel called Our Lady in the Pew, where he made his prayers. End quote. Frossart tells us that the figure of the Virgin in this chapel was renowned for its many virtues, and that the kings of England had much faith in the miracles performed at this shrine. When Richard left Westminster, he quote, made proclamation that all the commons of the country that were in London should meet him at Smithfield, 
End quote. In the Stowe manuscript, there is a very full and clear record of the subsequent proceedings. The king went to the house of the canons of St. Bartholomew, quote, and then the mayor of London, William Walworth, came to the king, who commanded him to go to the commons to make their chieftain come to him, and when he was called by the mayor, Wat Tyler of Maidstone by name, he came to the king with great countenance, mounted on a small horse, so as to be seen by the commons, and dismounted, carrying a dagger in his hand, which he had taken from another man. And when he was dismounted, he took the king by the hand, half kneeling, and shook his arm sharply and strongly, saying to him, Brother, be of good comfort. And the king said to the said what, Why will you not go to your country? And the other replied with a great oath, that he and his companions would not go unless they had their charter such as they wished to have. End quote. The points are then set forth in fuller particularity than they were in the previous meeting at Mile End. Such demands as were not mentioned previously are as follows. Quote, that there should be no law outside the law of Winchester. That no outlawry should be by any process of law made henceforth. That the goods of holy church should not be in the hands of men of religion, nor of the parsons and vicars, nor of others of holy church, but the avantes should have their sustenance easily, and the remainder of the goods should be divided among the parishioners, and no bishop should be in England except one, and all the lands and tenements of the possessors should be taken from them and parted among the commons, saving to them their reasonable sustenance. To this the king replied easily, and said that he, what, should have all this that he, the king, could properly grant, saving to him the rights of his crown, commanding him, what, to go to his hold without more delay. End quote. From this point there are differences in the accounts, and it is difficult to be quite certain about the sequence of events which brought about Wat Tyler's death. Stowe accuses the leader of a deep-laid scheme for which there does not appear to be any special authority. He writes, quote, Wat Tyler, being a crafty fellow, of excellent wit, but lacking grace, answered that peace be offered, but with conditions to his liking, minding to feed the king with fair words till the next day, that he might, in the night, have compassed his perverse purpose, for they thought the same night to have spoiled the city, the king first being slain, and the great lords that cleaved to him, to have burnt the city by setting fire in four parts thereof. End quote. We now have to coordinate the different accounts of the end of Wat Tyler. Some of these take no notice of the causes that led to Walworth's action, but Stowe's description seems in the main to make the whole scene clear. Although he does not produce a consecutive narrative, but rather relates incidents out of their proper order. The great open space of Smithfield, the favourite meeting place on the north of London, and the chosen site for the tournaments and jousts, was crowded on all sides. Near the gate of St. Bartholomew's Priory were the king and his court, and farther to the west were the ranks of the commons set in order of battle. There had been some conference between the leaders, but no agreement had been come to, and naturally the state of tension was profound. What Tyler threatened the king, and took umbrage at the position of Sir John Newton, or Newington, 
keeper of Rochester Castle, who bore the king's sword. He treated with much disrespect the knight, who remarked that he recognized in the rebel leader the greatest thief and robber of his country. This so enraged Wat Tyler that he first ordered his followers to behead Newington, and then attempted to strike him with his dagger. At this, Walworth came forward and requested the king to allow him to arrest Wat, who struck at him, but without effect, as Walworth's armour protected him. The mayor then, in self-defence, attacked Watt and wounded him in the neck, and gave him a blow on the head. John Cavendish, or, as some say, Ralph Standish, then came forward in support of the mayor and wounded Watt in several places. The chieftain spurred his horse and cried to the commons to avenge him. After riding some thirty yards, he fell off his horse, half dead, and was taken to the hospital of St. Bartholomew's, where he died. What purports to be the dagger with which Walworth struck Watt Tyler is in the possession of the fishmonger's company. The suspense at this crisis must have been intense. The rebels prepared their bows, but the arrows were not let fly, for the king, spurring his horse, rode forward across the square to the host, and cried out, Will you shoot your king? I am your captain and leader. Follow me. This brilliant display of courage by the beautiful boy of fourteen, who had the misfortune to be king, had its effect, and the commons followed him peaceably into the fields of Clerkenwell. Walworth raised a body of loyal citizens, and these marched out under the command of Sir Robert Knowles, and surrounded the rebels, who surrendered and asked for pardon. The host was divided into companies and sent to their respective homes under proper escort. Now that the authorities were triumphant, the leaderless rebels fared badly. On July 2nd, the charters were revoked. John Ball fled to the Midlands, and, according to Foissart, he was taken prisoner at Coventry in an old ruin. On the 15th of July, he was drawn, hanged, and quartered, just one month after the death of Wat Tyler. On December 13th, the king proclaimed a general pardon. A contemporary account of the insurrection was drawn up and inserted in the city letterbook H. A translation of this is printed in Riley's memorials. It is of great interest, but naturally no attempt at a judicial statement is made. The events are described as, quote, among the most wondrous and hitherto unheard of prodigies that ever happened in the city of London, end quote. And it is stated that, quote, Hardly was there a street in the city in which there were not bodies lying of those who had been slain. End quote. The traitors who let in the mob are described as quote, perfidious commoners within the city. End quote. The whole account is written with spirit, and the ending of the fearful days is graphically described. Quote, Therefore, our Lord the King returned into the city of London with the greatest glory and honour and the whole of this profane multitude in confusion fled forthwith for concealment in their affright. Our Lord the King, beneath his standard in the said field, with his own hands, decorated with the order of knighthood, the said mayor, William Walworth, and Sir Nicholas Brember, and Sir John Philippot, who had already been mayors of the said city, and also Sir Robert Lamb. End quote. Thus ended the Peasants' Rising which, although it ended in total defeat to its promoters, 
exercised an enormous influence on the course of English history. The insurrection of Jack Cade was not so important an event as that of Wat Tyler, but it must not by any means be considered merely as an outbreak of the lower classes. Fabian, the alderman and sheriff, has left us particulars of the insurrection, and some further details have been discovered by Dr. James Gardner, C.B., who has given a connected account in the preface to his authoritative edition of the Paston Letters, and also in the Dictionary of National Biography. It is almost impossible to understand the characters of the men who held responsible positions in the reign of Henry VI. The uncles of the king quarrelled among themselves, and their respective followers were hunted down by their enemies. William de la Pole, the fourth Earl and first Duke of Suffolk, a distinguished leader in the French wars, but a politician in later life, was the chief opponent of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the leader of the warlike party. Suffolk was an active agent for peace. Apparently, the English people were then very much like what they have been in later time. Peace, after a successful war, has usually been unpopular, and the unfortunate Suffolk was howled at for having given back the provinces to France. Quote, By thee Anjou and Maine were sold to France. The false revolting Normans, thoroughly, disdained to call us lord, and Picardy hath slain their governors, surprised our forts, and sent the ragged soldiers wounded home. End quote. The Londoners were strongly antagonistic to Suffolk, who was generally accused of maladministration and malversation without definite charges. His friends could not protect him against his enemies, and when trying to escape to France, he was intercepted in the Straits of Dover, put in a little boat, and murdered. His body was thrown on the beach near Dover. It was afterwards buried by order of the king. His death did not satisfy the discontented, and other courtiers succeeded to his place in the disfavour of the people. Whole districts of the counties of Kent, Surrey and Sussex rose in arms to the extent of thirty thousand men, clamouring for the redress of grievances. The masses received assistance from some of the best families of these counties. The chronicler Gregory says that the captain, quote, compassed all the gentles to arise with him, end quote. A man who called himself John Mortimer and affirmed that he was a cousin of the Duke of York was chosen to be leader. His real name was believed to be Cade. He was an Irishman who had had some experience in war and showed himself a strong leader. On the 1st of June, 1450, a considerable army marched on London and encamped at Blackheath, where they formed a regular encampment. On hearing of this, Henry VI came from Leicester to London, where he arrived on the 6th. He took up his quarters at the Hospital of St. John's, Clerkenwell, and with him were 20,000 troops. The king sent to know the cause of the rising, and was answered thus, quote, To destroy traitors being about him, with other diverse points. End quote. A message was then sent by the king, and proclamation was made that loyal men should immediately quit the field. Upon the night after, all the insurgents were gone, and the insurrection seemed to have come to an end. On the 11th of June, the king proceeded to Blackheath, and he found that the rebels had withdrawn in the night time. Instead of leaving well alone, 
it was decided to pursue the insurgents, and a detachment of the Royal Army under Sir Humphrey Stafford and his brother William was sent in pursuit. A battle took place on the 18th at Sevenoaks, in which both the Staffords were killed and the rest of the party completely routed. The followers of the king in the royal camp were dismayed, and many of them threatened that if justice was not done on certain traitors who had resisted the king, they would go over to the captain of Kent. One of the chief of these unpopular courtiers was James Fines, Lord Say and Sell, a follower of Suffolk, and to please the disaffected, he was sent to the tower. The king withdrew to Greenwich, and the whole of the army dispersed. He returned to London by water, and made preparations for removal to Kenilworth. The mayor and the commons beseeched him to remain in London, offering to live and die with him, and to pay half the cost of his household, but he would not consent. The city authorities did not know what to do, and a party among them opened negotiations with the insurgents. Alderman Cook passed to and fro under the safe conduct of the captain. Stowe prints in his chronicle, quote, The safeguard and sign manual of the captain of Kent sent to Thomas Cook, draper of London, by the captain of the Great Assembly in Kent. End quote. He also gives, quote, The complaint of the commons of Kent. End quote. And, quote, The requests by the captain of the Great Assembly in Kent. End quote. These are differently worded from the quote, proclamation made by Jack Cade, end quote, which has been printed from a manuscript in the handwriting of Stowe, but the sentiments and complaints in all of the documents are essentially the same. They contain a remarkable expression of the feelings of general unrest among the people, although they are doubtless very unjust to the character of the Duke of Suffolk and his followers. On the 1st of July, the insurgents entered Southwark, and Jack Cade made the White Hart Inn his headquarters. According to Fabian, while the commons of Kent settled themselves in Southwark, the rebels of Essex made, quote, a field upon the plain of Mile End, end quote, their resting place. On the 2nd of July, a court was held by the mayor for the purpose of considering the best means of resisting the entry of the rebels into the city. It was found, however, that the majority were in their favour, so that Alderman John Horne was committed to Newgate for opposing the views of the malcontents. In the afternoon, about five o'clock, the insurgents were admitted into the city and passed over London Bridge, Cade cutting the ropes of the drawbridge with his sword. Cade then issued proclamations in the King's name against robbery and forced requisitions, and rode through the streets, taking the city under his complete control. When he came to the London Stone in Cannon Street, he struck it with his sword and said, quote, Now is Mortimer lord of this city. End quote. This was a circumstance of the greatest interest in the history of London, for it shows that some special virtue was supposed, in the popular mind, to be connected with London Stone. Cade now gave orders to the mayor and returned to Southwark for the night. On Friday the 3rd of July, he returned to the city and sent for Lord Say and ordered him, after a mock trial, to be beheaded at the Standard in Cheapside. Cromer, an unpopular sheriff of Kent and son-in-law to Say, was beheaded at Mile End. 
As Jack Cade did not wish to be publicly recognised by those who knew his origin, he caused one Bailey, who was supposed to be an old acquaintance, to be beheaded at Whitechapel. Attention to the rules of order and honesty at length tired the leader, and Stowe relates that, quote, He went into the house of Philip Malpass, draper and alderman, and robbed and spoiled his house, taking from thence great substance, and returned unto Southwark. On the next morrow he again entered the city, and dined that day in the parish of St. Margaret Pattens, at one Gersty's house, and when he had dined, like an uncourteous guest, he robbed him, as the day before he had Malpass. For which two robberies, although the poor people drew to him and were partners in the spoil, yet the honest and wealthy commoners cast in their minds the sequel of this matter, and fear lest they should be dealt with in like manner. End quote. On Sunday the 5th of July, Cade and his followers remained in Southwark all day, and in the evening the mayor and citizens, with a force under the command of Matthew Gough, occupied London Bridge to prevent the Kentish men from entering the city. Desperate fighting on the bridge continued all through the night, from nine o'clock till nine on the following morning. Quote, sometime the citizens had the better, and sometimes the other, but ever they kept them upon the bridge, so that the citizens never passed much the bulwark at the bridge foot, nor the Kentish men no farther than the drawbridge. Thus continued the cruel fight to the destruction of much people on both sides. End quote. Matthew Gough, John Sutton, alderman, and Roger Hoysand, citizen, were among the killed. When the rebels got the worst of the encounter, a truce was made. A conference was arranged, and Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester, and some others met Cade in St. Margaret's Church, Southwark. The bishop produced two general pardons sent by the Chancellor, Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of York, one for the captain himself, and the other for his followers. These were eagerly accepted, as the insurgents were disgusted with their leader, and they were only too glad to return to their homes. It seems to have been generally believed that Cade was entitled to the name of Mortimer, but after this conference the truth got abroad, and his pardon was necessarily invalidated in consequence of this discovery. On the 12th of July, therefore, a proclamation of the king was issued for the apprehension of Cade, and the offer of a reward of one thousand marks to anyone who should take him alive or dead. Cade escaped in disguise towards the woody country round Lewis. He was pursued by Alexander Iden, and captured and mortally wounded by him at Heathfield, Sussex, on the 13th. The place is known as Cade Street, and a stone with an inscription stands on the site of the capture. Cade's body was taken to London, his head was placed on London Bridge, and his four quarters were sent to different parts of Kent. Thus ended this dangerous rebellion. The whole history of the origin of the Rising is most complicated. Not only, as already mentioned, were the gentry of Kent on the side of the rebels, but most of the important persons in Southwark supported them. There were Richard Dartmouth, Abbot of Battle, John Daniel, Prior of Lewis, and Robert Poynings, uncle of the Countess of Northumberland and husband of Margaret Paston. Quote, when the pardon time came, a goodly list of names was recorded, 
with which it was thought wise to deal leniently. End quote. The second part of King Henry VI, which Shakespeare slightly altered from the first part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of York and Lancaster, is chiefly concerned with Cade's rebellion. But it is sad that such a perversion of history should in any way be connected with the honoured name of our greatest poet. The libel against Suffolk, quote, There let his head and lifeless body lie, until the queen his mistress bury it, end quote, is apparently devoid of the slightest foundation. The representation of Cade is also a ridiculous travesty. His proclamation, which has come down to us, will be seen to be a very clear and ingenious piece of composition. Moreover, Latin is quoted in it, and therefore the writer is not likely to have considered it a crime to speak Latin. Cade's description of Lord Say, quote, Thou hast most traitorously corrupted the youth of the realm in erecting a grammar school, and whereas before our forefathers had no other books but the score and the tally, thou hast caused printing to be used, and contrary to the king, his crown, and dignity, thou hast built a paper mill, end quote, has no foundation whatever in history. In spite of the anachronism of the allusion to the printing press, Gibbon was deceived by the description, and, in claiming Lord Say as an ancestor, styled him a martyr to learning. Dr. Gairdner discovered in Gregory's Chronicle a very remarkable statement which, if true, would throw great light upon the origin of the outbreak. Quote, and after that, the Battle of Sevenoaks, upon the first day of Juil, the same captain come again, as the Kentish men said, but hit was another that named himself the captain, and he come to the Black Heath. End quote. Dr. Gairdner is inclined to take this as something more than a mere rumour, but he waits for some corroboration from another source before entirely accepting it. He adds in a note, quote, The story of Jack Cade, however, is attended with difficulties from any point of view, and it is remarkable that when Cade's body was brought to London, it was taken to the White Hart at Southwark, where he had lodged before his entry into the city and identified by the woman who kept the house. We hear nothing of its being identified by anyone who had seen the leader before the Battle of Sevenoaks. End quote. End of chapter 2, part 3. End of section 5. Section 6 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley Chapter 3 Round the Town with Chaucer and the Poets of His Time Having considered some of the chief conditions of life in a walled town and the manners of the inhabitants, we can now proceed to look at old London through the eyes of the great English poets of the later medieval period, to whom we are so much indebted for the insight they give us into the habits of a long-dead past. That wonderful book, Piers Plowman, 
not only brings before us in the most vivid fashion the life of the 14th century, but opens out to us the thoughts and hopes of the leaders of men. One of the most striking passages contains a description of the interior of a beer house in the reign of Edward III, with the company assembled therein. This is a scene common to the whole country, but London places are also frequently mentioned in Piers Plowman. The author, William Langland, called Long Will, probably from his tallness, was an inhabitant of London, but he has little to say in its favour. He wrote, quote, I have lived long in London, but have never found charity. All whom I have seen are covetous. End quote. Professor Skeet says, quote, One great merit of the poem is that it chiefly exhibits London life and London opinions, which are surely of more interest to us than those of Worcestershire. He does but mention Malvern three times and those three passages may be found within the compass of the first eight passes of text A. But how numerous are his allusions to London! He not only speaks of it several times, but he frequently mentions the law courts of Westminster. He was familiar with Cornhill, East Cheap, Cock Lane in Smithfield, Shoreditch, Garlickhithe, Stratford, Tyburn and Southwark, all of which he mentions in an off-hand manner. He mentions no river but the Thames, which is with him simply synonymous with river. For in one passage he speaks of two men thrown into the Thames, and in another he says that rich men are wont to give presents to the rich, which is as superfluous as if one should fill a tun with water from a fresh river and then pour it into the Thames to render it wetter. To remember the London origin of a large portion of the poem is the true key to the right understanding of it. End quote. Footnote. There was another cock lane near Shoreditch, now Boundary Street, which may be the one connected with Langland. End of footnote. Monsieur Jusserand, in his interesting study of Piers Plowman, says of Langland, quote, he tells us what he has seen and nothing else. His sole guide is the light that shines over the town where truth is imprisoned. End quote. He continues, quote, It clears the darkness of the London lanes, where, under the pent roof of their shops, the merchants make guile, disguised as an apprentice, sell their adulterated wares. It brightens the hovel in Cornhill where the poet lodges his emaciated body. It throws its rays on the scared faces of sinners for whom the hour of punishment has rung. We have here a whole gallery of portraits which stand out in an extraordinary manner. End quote. Monsieur Jusserand takes a somewhat unfavourable view of Langland's character. He says that the poet, quote, blames those who go to London and sing for souls, yet he confesses that he does the same. He blames people of a wandering habit, yet he is a wanderer. He heaps scorn on the men who seek for invitations at the houses of the great, yet he does so. He condemns, though that fain and here follis, and he assumes the appearance of a foal. He hates lazy people, laurels, lolaires 
yet he lives himself as a laurel, a lolla, a spill-time. And loved well fare, and no deed to do but drink and to sleep. End quote. The satirist and the censor cannot always be consistent, and without deciding upon the character of Langland, gratitude to him causes us to forgive his inconsistencies, and make us more inclined to agree with the high estimate of Professor Skeet, rather than with the condemnation of Monsieur Jusserand. Langland was taken by the leaders of the Peasants' Rising as the great prophet of their movement, but he himself stood outside the political circle. He complained of the evils that were everywhere rampant, but he did not wish to set himself against the government. As Dr. Skeet says, quote, His Richard the Reedless is a tender and touching remonstrance to the king, Richard II. End quote. Thomas Hockcleave and John Gower were Londoners, the former a clerk in the Privy Seal office, and the latter probably a city merchant. Hockleave is supposed to have taken his name from the village of Hockcliffe, Bedfordshire, on the Roman road, four and a half miles south of Woburn, and three and a half east of Leighton Buzzard. He intended at first to become a priest, but instead he entered the Privy Seal office in 1308, when he was nineteen or twenty years of age. He complained of the drudgery of copying, and seems to have always been ready to shirk his work. Dr. Furnival's side notes to the autobiographical portion of the Regiment of Princes shows what the complaints are like. Quote, A copier must always work, mind, eye, and hand together. He can't talk to other folk, or sing, but must give all his wits to his work. Workmen talk, sing, and lark. We labour in silence, stoop and stare on the sheepskin. Our copying hurts our stomachs, our backs, and our eyes. Anyone who has copied for twenty years like I have suffers for it in every bit of his body. It's nearly done for me. Had I always lived in poverty, I shouldn't feel it so much now, but the change is strange. God keep me from poverty. I'd sooner die than live miserably. End quote. As there were many copyists employed in London, we must hope that they were not all so weary of their work as the poet was. He lived at Chester Inn, which stood on part of the site of the present Somerset House. Quote, at Chester Inn, right fast be the strand. End quote. His daily occupation took him to Westminster, where the Privy Seal office was situated and as the Strand was but a poor road, we may suppose that he went from home to office in a boat. He went frequently to Paul's Head Tavern in St. Paul's Churchyard, where he made love to the waitresses and others. He also belonged to a dining club, called the Temple Club, quote, the Court of Good Company, end quote. Often, after dinner, instead of going back to the office, he took his pleasure on the Thames, being flattered by the watermen, who fought amongst themselves for his patronage and called him master because he paid them well. He was a good churchman and denounced the Lollard Rising in St. Giles' Fields in January 1414 in good set terms. 
Hockleave was not a very lively poet, and he always seems to have been in want of money. He enjoyed the early part of his life, but when he married and the pinch of poverty came upon him, he was very dejected. In spite of his faults, we cannot but esteem him, and feel that he has a claim on our gratitude because he was devoted to Chaucer, and was the cause of our possessing the best portrait there is of the poet. Hockleave was near Chaucer in his last days. He could easily pass from Westminster Palace to the garden of the chapel of St. Mary. Dr. Furnival suggests that he was with Chaucer when the great poet died there. Dr. G. C. Macaulay, in the introduction to his valuable and exhaustive edition of Gower's Complete Works, says that the poet speaks with special respect of the estate of merchants, which seems to suggest that it was, as a merchant, he made the money which he spent in buying his land, and this inference is supported by the manner in which he speaks of, quote, our city, end quote, and by the fact that it is with members of the merchant class that he seems to be most in personal communication. Dr. Macaulay supposes Gower to have been a dealer in wool, with the natural dislike of the Londoner for foreigners. The jealousy of the Lombards which he expresses has every appearance of being a prejudice connected with rivalry in commerce. Quote, I see Lombards come, he says, in poor attire as servants, and before a year has passed, they have gained so much by deceit and conspiracy that they dress more nobly than the burgesses of our city. End quote. John Gower at one time lived at Southwark, and in St. Saviour's Church his tomb still stands. One day, in the year 1390, when he had taken boat on the Thames, he accidentally met the king, Richard II, in his tapestried barge. The river was the silent highway for all Londoners, also the royal road from Westminster to the Tower, and from thence to Greenwich. Brilliant scenes were to be seen on the river, which joined all parts of the town in one. Here all classes were brought together, the gentry and the working classes, and court pageants were constantly being enacted. When Richard saw Gower, he commanded him to come into the royal barge, and then charged him to write some new thing which he might read. The poet obeyed the command, and produced the Confessio Amantis, with a prologue in which occur these lines. Quote, in our English, I think, make a book for King Richard's sake, to whom belongeth my legiance, with all mine heart's obeisance, in all that ever a liege man unto his king may do nor can. So perforth I me recommend, to him which all me may command, preend unto the high reign, which causeth every king to reign, that his corone long stood. I think and have it understood, as it befell upon a tide, as thing which should though betide, under the town of New Troy, which took of brute his first joy, in Thames when it was flowend, as I be bot camroend, so as fortune here time set, my liege lord par chaunce I met, and so befell as I came nigh, out of my bot when he me sigh. He bade me come into his barge. And when I was with him at large, amongst other things said, 
he hath this charge upon me laid, and bade me do my business, that to his high worthiness some new thing I should boke, that he himself it might look after the form of my writing. And thus upon his commanding, mine heart is well the more glad, to write so as he me bad, and eke my fair as well the lass, that none envy shall compass, without a reasonable wight, to pine and blame that I write. End quote. As time went on, Gower lost faith in Richard. The personal reference to the king was suppressed, and instead of a book for King Richard's sake, he wrote, quote, a book for England's sake. End quote. The original picture is of all the more interest because Gower's verse is not usually elusive to the characteristics of London life. John Lydgate was a countryman and monk of Bury, born at Lydgate, near Newmarket, about 1370, as he himself tells us in the Tale of Princes. He was not in sympathy with the doings of the city, but his London Lickpenny is an invaluable record of London life in his day, in which are related the adventures of a poor Kentish man who comes to London in search of justice, but cannot find it for lack of money. First, he went to Westminster Hall, and visited successively the different courts of law, the King's Bench and the Common Pleas, and then to the Rolls, quote, before the clerks of the Chancery, end quote. Quote, Within this hall, neither rich nor yet poor would do for me aught, although I should die, which seeing I got me out of the door, where Flemings began on me for to cry. Master, what will you copen or buy? Fine felt hats or spectacles to read. Lay down your silver, and here you may speed. End quote. At Westminster Gate, quote, Cooks to me they took good intent, and proffered me bread with ale and wine, ribs of beef, both fat and full fine, a fair cloth they gan for me to spread, but wanting money I might not then speed. End quote. No doubt the countryman had sufficient cause for many of his complaints, but we cannot but ask, why should he expect to obtain things without paying for them? He proceeds to London and hears the various cries of the streets. Hot peas codes, strawberry ripe, cherries in the rise, i.e. on the bough. Some of the tradesmen offered spice, pepper and saffron. In Cheapside he saw velvet, silk and lawn and, quote, Paris thread, the finest in the land, end quote. He goes by London stone through Cannon Street where drapers offered him much cloth. Others cried, Hot sheep's feet, mackerel, rushes green. In East Cheap there were ribs of beef, many a pie and pewter pots in a heap. A taverner in Cornhill took him by the sleeve. Quote, Sir, saith he, will you our wine assay? End quote. He was now tired of his excursion and walked to Billingsgate, where he prayed a bargeman to take him in his boat for nothing. All this is a groundless complaint, 
but he was also robbed at Westminster of his hood. In Cannon Street, he was asked to buy a new one, and in Cornhill, among much stolen property, he saw his own hood hanging up for sale. This reminds one of the oft-repeated story of the man who, walking through Petticoat Lane, was robbed as he entered and found the object stolen from him ticketed for sale as he turned out of it. The countryman soon has enough of London and its ways and conveys himself back into Kent, ending his account of his adventures with these words. Quote, Save London and send true lawyers their mead, for those who so wants money with them shall not speed. End quote. The words of the poet already referred to are of the greatest value to us, and we are grateful for the vivid pictures of medieval life they have left us. But we have in Chaucer an ideal Londoner, far beyond the others in the charm of his writing, one who loved the city in which he lived and died. Langland was too much occupied in denouncing the evils of his time to be able to see the good. Lydgate, Hockcleave and Gower also took partial views of the life around them. It is the great genius and large-heartedness of Chaucer that enables us to see the mixed good and evil. Thanks to the labours of many scholars, we seem to know Chaucer, who died five centuries ago, better than many great men who have lived nearer our own days, and, strange to say, although we take him as a representative of the Middle Ages, and he was that, he was so imbued with the modern spirit that we cannot but feel that he is at one with us in his views of the life around him. He was associated with all parts of London, so that, in a walk through the town with him, we can illustrate our journey from the facts known of his life and with extracts from his works. The facts of Chaucer's life, as written in official documents which have been found by enthusiastic searchers, are largely illustrative of London history, and it is only with these special facts that we are here concerned. Geoffrey Chaucer was the son of a citizen and vintner of the City of London, and probably born at his father's house in Thames Street, in the Vintry, at or near the foot of Dowgate Hill. The house came into Geoffrey's possession after his father's death, when he sold it. There has been much discussion as to the date of his birth. It must have been after 1328, because we know that in that year his father was a bachelor. There is much to be said in favour of the supposition that he was born about 1340. His family must have stood well in public esteem, with good connections, as the young man was early attached to the court, and during his lifetime he filled several offices of distinction. His grandfather, Robert Le Chaucer, was one of the collectors at the Port of London of the new customs upon wine, granted by the merchants of Aquitaine. We have no information as to Geoffrey's schooling, but doubtless the position of his father was such that he would find a place at one of the schools that were attached to the chief religious houses of London. Fitzstephen tells us that the three chief schools were connected with St. Paul's, St. Martin's Le Grand, and Holy Trinity, Aldgate. Neither of these schools is far from the Vintry, and Chaucer might have gone to either of them. St. Paul's is, of course, the nearest, but if he went to this school, there ought to be some tradition of the fact still existing. 
There is no claim, however, to Chaucer, set up by the historians of the successor of the old school, the new foundation of Dean Collet. Chaucer's early life was spent at court and in diplomatic missions. In June 1374, he was appointed comptroller of the customs and subsidy of wool skins and tanned hides in the Port of London. Attached to his office was the obligation to keep the records with his own hand and to be continuously present. In the previous May, looking out for a convenient residence, he rented Aldgate from the city authorities. In The House of Fame, we have a picture of the poet at Aldgate after a hard day's work, writing of love, with his head aching, in his study at night. Quote, that there no tiding cometh to thee, but of thy very neighbours, that dwellen almost at thy doors, thou hearest neither that nay this, for when thy labour doon all is, and hast imad thy reckonings, instead of rest and newer things, thou gost whom to thy house anoon, and also dom as thy stoon, thou sittest at another book, till fully dasward is thy look, and livest thus as an hermite, although thine abstinence is light. End quote. Here, at Aldgate, Professor Hales tells us he wrote most of the works of his middle period. Quote, it was in the old tower of Aldgate that he made himself a supreme master of the poetic craft, and turned his mastery to immortal account in the production of so exquisite a piece as Troilus and Cressida, and in the designing of a work that should give yet ampler expression to his manifold gifts and graces, to his maturest thought and his highest inspiration. End quote. In 1382, he obtained an additional comptrollership, that of the petty customs of the Port of London, with leave to nominate a substitute on the understanding that he was responsible for him. In February 1385, the same privilege was allowed him in regard to his old comptrollership, and soon afterwards he left the gate house of Aldgate. In October 1386, he was elected knight of the Shire for Kent, and then political troubles caused him to lose both his comptrollerships. Professor Hales finds that the premises were granted in October 1386 to Richard Foster, possibly identical with Richard Forrester, who was one of Chaucer's proxies when he went abroad for a time in May 1378. The date of The Legend of Good Women is given as probably in the spring or summer of 1386, and as the house in which he was then living had a garden and an arbour, it could not have been the dwelling house of Aldgate. Professor Hales believes that when the poet left the latter place, he went to live at Greenwich. Quote, when that the sun out of the south gone west, and that this flower gone close and go to rest, for darkness of the night, for which she dread, home to mine house full swiftly I me sped, to go to rest, and early for to rise, to see this flower spread, as I devise. And in a little arbour that I have, that benched was on turves, fresh e grave, I bade men should me my couch make, for dainty of the new summer's sake, I bade them strawn flowers on my bed. End quote. 
the year 1387 has been fixed as the date of the framework of the pilgrimage to Canterbury, starting from the Tabard, fast by the ball in Southwark. Some of the tales had certainly been written before this, but then it was that they were gathered together. A very interesting note by Professor Hales, on the date of the Canterbury Tales, is printed in the Athenium, in which some excellent reasons are given in support of this date. Quote, it has been, and is by some still, placed as late as 1393. But the evidence for placing it so late is extremely slight, if, indeed, there is any at all that bears investigation. Whereas, assuredly, many things point to the year 1387 or thereabouts as the year of the pilgrimage and of Chaucer's immortal description of it. End quote. In 1389, Chaucer was clerk of the king's works at the Palace of Westminster, the Tower of London, and various royal manors. In 1390, he was employed to repair St. George's Chapel, Windsor, and to erect scaffolds at Smithfield for Richard II and his queen, Anne of Bohemia, for them to view a great tournament. He was also appointed one of the commission for the repair of the roadways on the banks of the river between Greenwich and Woolwich. About this time, a great misfortune overtook the poet. In the pursuit of his duties, with the king's money in his purse to pay the workmen, he was robbed by highwaymen twice on the same day, the first time at Westminster of ten pounds, and the second at Hatcham, near the Fowl Oak, of nine pounds, three shillings and eightpence. This was a serious loss, and he was forgiven the amount by writ dated 6th of January, 1391. In this same year, Chaucer lost his lucrative clerkships, and we hear no more of him from the records till 1399, when he took a lease for fifty-three years of a tenement in the garden of St. Mary's Chapel, Westminster, on the site of Henry VII's chapel. Here he died ten months after, on the 25th of October, 1400, Thus ended the full and busy life of the many-sided poet, who was also a man of science, soldier, esquire of the king's household, envoy on several foreign missions, comptroller of customs, and member of parliament. From this catalogue of Chaucer's offices and official movements, we can see that a better guide to the London of his day could not be found. We may take it for granted that he walked over the greater part of the city continually. As a boy, he was an inhabitant of the Vintry, and from here he could walk to school either in a north-easterly direction to Holy Trinity Aldgate, or in a westerly direction to St Paul's or St Martin's Le Grand. Then, at about seventeen years of age, he was attached to the court, and for some years he was a frequent attendant at the Palace of Westminster. When he settled to his duties at the customs house, he went backwards and forwards to Aldgate. Sometimes he would walk up Spurrier's Lane, now Water Lane, cross Tower Street, along Fenchurch Street, up Mark, then Mart, Lane to the gate. At other times he would probably find his way to Great Tower Hill and pass through the Tower Postern to Little Tower Hill. From here he would walk northward among the trees between the wall and town ditch on the one side and the nunnery of the minaresses on the other. 
in 1381, at the time of the peasants' revolt, Chaucer was, we may suppose, in London, but he does not allude at all fully to the reign of terror which for four days overshadowed the city. The men of Essex were outside Aldgate waiting to be let in, and when the bridge gate was opened to the men of Kent, the eastern gate was also thrown open. One would wish to have known what Chaucer was doing then. Did he look out of the window of his house and watch the threatening crowd, or had he gone to the support of the king in the tower? He only makes a passing allusion to the murder of the Flemings in the nun's priest's tale. Quote, Certes he jack straw and his mane, ne madden shouts never half so skrill, when that they wouldn't any Fleming kill, as Vilka Day was made upon the fox. End quote. Chaucer must have often wandered outside Aldgate, and after a hard day's work, he would naturally stroll along the wide and pleasant eastern road. He introduces the Benedictine nunnery of Stratford at Bow in his description of the prioress, Madame Eglantine. Quote, and French she spake full fair and fetisly, after the skull of Stratford at Bow, for French of Paris was to hear unknow. End quote. And certainly he must have passed over the bridge built by Queen Matilda in the twelfth century, which gave its name to the village. In 1389, after he had left Aldgate, and when he was probably settled at Westminster, of which palace he was clerk of the works, he was often called to the tower, close by his old office at the custom house, to see to the necessary repairs. Like others, Chaucer probably used the river as often as possible, for many of the streets were not very pleasant to walk along, but in carrying out his many official duties, he was obliged to visit all parts of the city, and he must therefore have left few streets within the walls untraversed. We have chiefly noted the places on the east side of London, and we can therefore now pass to the west. The controversy that raged over the question of the respective claims of the families of Scrope and Grosvenor to a certain coat of arms is of high interest to the Herald. But in the voluminous evidence, the lover of Chaucer and of London scarcely expects to find a statement by the poet himself as to his being in Friday Street on a certain day and what he saw there. The whole account of the poet's examination is of the greatest interest. Quote, Geoffrey Chaucer, Esquire, of the age of forty years and more, armed twenty-seven years, for the side of Sir Richard Lescrop, sworn and examined, being asked if the arms, azure, abend, or, belong or ought to pertain to the said Sir Richard by right and heritage, said, yes, for he saw him so armed in France, 1359, before the town of Retters, Rettel and Sir Henry Lescrop armed in the same arms with the white label and with banner, and the said Sir Richard armed in the entire arms, azure, abend, or, and so during the whole expedition, until the said Geoffrey was taken. Being asked how he knew that the said arms belonged to the said Sir Richard, said that he had heard old knights and esquires say that they had had continual possession of the said arms and that he had seen them displayed on banners, glass-painting and vestments, and commonly called the arms of Scrope, 
being asked whether he had ever heard of any interruption or challenge made by Sir Robert Grosvenor, or his ancestors, said, No, but that he was once in Friday Street, London, and walking up the street he observed a new sign hanging out, with these arms thereon, and he inquired what inn that was that had hung out these arms of Scrope, and one answered, saying, They are not hung out, sir, for the arms of Scrope, nor painted there for those arms, but they are painted and put there by a knight of the county of Chester, called Sir Robert Grosvenor. And that was the first time he ever heard speak of Sir Robert Grosvenor, or his ancestors, or of anyone bearing the name of Grosvenor. End quote. Friday Street was close by Old St. Paul's, the glory of the city, which was magnificent within and without. When Chaucer knew it, the fine tomb of Sir John Beauchamp, died 1358, constable of Dover Castle, in the middle aisle of the nave, was new. The monument was the chief object in the nave, and came to be called, incorrectly, Duke Humphrey's tomb, and the nave from it was styled Duke Humphrey's Walk. The stately tomb of John of Gaunt died 1399, which was later on the most prominent object in the choir, was probably not erected in Chaucer's lifetime. The old cathedral was full of chantries, as were the other churches of London. The number of chantry priests gave great offence, as appears in Piers Plowman and the works of the other poets. The poor parson is described in the prologue of the Canterbury Tales as attending to his own flock, and not performing the services of the dead at other shrines. Quote, he set not his benefice to hire, and let his sheep accumbered in the mire, and ran unto London, into St. Paul's, to seek in him a chauntry for souls. End quote. Outside Newgate, Chaucer went up Cow Lane, now King Street, to Smithfield, the open space appropriated to tournaments, markets, and shows, to prepare for the jousts to be held before the king and his queen in 1390. Passing from London to Westminster, we come to the Mews, the site of the present National Gallery, which Chaucer had for a time under his charge. He settled in the precincts of Westminster Abbey, and there passed away. It has been erroneously stated, on the authority of Stowe, that Chaucer was first buried in the cloisters. This is refuted by Caxton's distinct statement that the body was first buried in front of the chapel of St. Benedict. In 1555 or 1556, it was removed to its present position in the tomb prepared for it by Nicholas Brigham, where it has become the central object of the world-renowned poet's corner. The last place to be mentioned, and the one which he has chiefly immortalised, is the High Street, Southwark called also Long Southwark. Here was the tabard, where gathered the Canterbury pilgrims, who set out on their pilgrimage under the leadership of Harry Bailey. Bailey was a real personage, and at one time Member of Parliament for Southwark. Footnote. The tabard was one among many inns from which travellers started on their journeys along the road to Canterbury and to the seaports of the south. The whole of the buildings which Chaucer knew were burnt in the Great Southwark Fire of 1676. End of footnote.
Of all the pictures drawn by Chaucer, the portraits of the pilgrims in the prologue to the Canterbury Tales are the most valuable for our present purpose, as showing us the men and women who were to be seen daily in the streets of London. It is a difficult matter to appraise the relative positions of our great authors, but probably the true test of immortality is the creation of living characters. It is largely the dramatic power displayed in the prologue to the Canterbury Tales which places Chaucer by the side of Shakespeare. End of chapter 3 End of section 6section 7 of the story of london this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by paul lawley jones the story of london by henry b wheatley chapter 4 the river and the bridge the river has made london and London has acknowledged its obligations to the Thames. It was the silent highway along which the chief traffic of the city passed during the Middle Ages, and, probably, the roads of London would have been better if the water carriage had not been so good. The river continued to be the silent highway until the 19th century, when it lost its high position. With the construction of the Thames embankment, the river again took its proper place as the centre of London, but it did not again become its main artery. We have seen in the previous chapter how the poet Gower met King Richard II near Westminster and was summoned to the royal barge. Fitzstephen gives a vivid description of the sports on the Thames. Quote, in the Easter holidays, they play at a game resembling a naval engagement. A target is firmly fastened to the trunk of a tree which is fixed in the middle of the river and in the prow of a boat, driven along by oars and the current, a young man who is to strike the target with his lance. If, in hitting it, he break his lance, and keep his position unmoved, he gains his point, and attains his desire. But if his lance be not shivered by the blow, he is tumbled into the river, and his boat passes by, driven along by its own motion. Two boats, however, are placed there, one on each side of the target, and in them a number of young men to take up the striker when he first emerges from the stream. On the bridge, and in balconies on the banks of the river, stand the spectators. End quote. Four centuries after this, Stowe describes a somewhat similar scene. Quote, I have also, in the summer season, seen some upon the river of Thames rowed in wherries, with staves in their hands, flat at the fore-end, running one against another, and for the most part, one or both overthrown and well ducked. End quote. One of the most remarkable incidents in the life of the Middle Ages is connected with the history of that highly placed lady, the unfortunate Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, whose enemies succeeded in condemning her to do penance in London in three open spaces on three separate days. She was brought by water from Westminster, and on the 13th of November, 1441, was put on shore at the Temple Bridge, on the 15th at the Old Swan, and again on the 17th at Queenhithe, and from these landing places 
she walked to the place of penance. The old swan, which stood near London Bridge, just where its successor now stands, can be traced further back than the reign of Henry VI, for a tavern with the sign of the swan is mentioned in a deed of Edward II's time. The old chronicles are full of references to what took place on the river. Thus, Edward Hall has a vivid picture of how the Archbishop of York, after leaving the widow of Edward IV in the sanctuary at Westminster, returned home to York Place at dawn of day. Quote, and when he opened his windows and looked on the Thames, he might see the river full of boats of the Duke of Gloucester, Richard III, his servants, watching that no person should go to sanctuary, nor should pass unsearched. End quote. Cavendish, in his Life of Wolsey, shows us two prelates talking confidentially in the Cardinal's barge. Quote, Thus, this court passed from session to session, and day to day, insomuch that a certain day the king sent for my lord, the breaking up one day of the court, to come to him in Bridewall. And to accomplish his commandment, he went unto him, and being there with him in communication in his grace's privy chamber from eleven until twelve of the clock, and passed at noon, my lord came out and departed from the king, and took his barge at the Blackfriars, and so went to his house at Westminster. The bishop of Carlisle, being with him in his barge, said unto him, wiping the sweat from his face, Sir, quoth he, it is a very hot day. Yea, quoth my lord cardinal, if ye had been as well chafed as I have been within this hour, you would say it was very hot. End quote. The river swarmed with watermen, and these men had their songs and choruses. A favourite song was in honour of Sir John Norman, mayor in 1454, who first broke the rule of riding to Westminster on Mayor's Day, and rode thither by water, a practice which continued for many years, and might now be revived with advantage. Quote, row the boat, Norman, row to thy leman. End quote. We can see from this how much, both of the business and pleasure of London, took place on the Thames. It reminds us vividly of the busy life of the canals of Venice. The river was the highway of business as well of pleasure, and the intimate relations between England and Normandy after the conquest naturally encouraged commerce between the continent and England, and London rapidly became the centre of this trade. Ships came here from Flanders, Germany, Gascony, Italy, and also from Norway. Wharves lined the sides of the Thames, and each class of goods was landed at a wharf set apart for a special nationality. In Henry II's reign, London and Bristol became the chief commercial ports of the kingdom, the former trading with Germany and the central ports of the continent, and the latter with the Scandinavian countries and with Ireland. The Normans had special privileges, and Mr. Horace Round points out that the charter of Henry, Duke of the Normans, afterwards Henry II of England, to the citizens of Rouen, 1150-1151, confers to them their port at Dowgate, as they had held it from the days of Edward the Confessor. Mr. Round adds that this is a fact unknown to English historians. 
The early history of Queen Hythe, for many years the chief rival to Billingsgate, is somewhat difficult to follow. In the Saxon period, it appears to have belonged to one Edred, who gave the wharf his name, by which it continued to be called for some years after the conquest. It was granted to Holy Trinity within Aldgate by William de Ypres, who received it from King Stephen. After some time, it again came into the possession of the king, and John is said to have given it to his mother, Eleanor, Queen of Henry II, after whom it received its name of Queen Hythe. By some means not recorded, the Reaper Regina came into the possession of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who, in 1246, granted it to John Guizors, then mayor, and the Commons of London to farm at an annual rent of £50. Henry III confirmed this grant, and the custody of the Hythe was thereupon committed to the sheriffs, and half a year's rent had been allowed, as the place appears to have fallen into decay, owing probably to the death of John de Stortford during his shrievalty. According to Stowe, quote, Edward II, in the first year of his reign, gave to Margaret, wife to Piers de Gaveston, £43, 12 shillings and ninepence halfpenny farthing, out of the rent of London to be received at the Queen's Hythe. End quote. Queen Hythe was the usual landing place for wine, wool, hides, corn, firewood, fish, and all kinds of commodities. It was probably to Queen Hythe that the wine fleet which brought to London the produce of the vineyards of the banks of the Moselle was bound. In the Liber Customarum, there is a full account of the yearly visit of this fleet, and the regulations as to its arrival at the new year, in the vicinity of Yanlade, the present Yantlet Creek, at the mouth of the Medway, which was the limit of the civic jurisdiction of the Thames. Here it was the duty of the fleet of adventurous hulks and keels, quote, to arrange themselves in due order and raise their ensign, the crews being at liberty, if so inclined, to sing their Kyriel or song of praise and thanksgiving, according to the old law, until London Bridge was reached. Arrived here, and the drawbridge duly raised, they were for a certain time to lie moored off the wharf. Here they were to remain at their moorings two ebbs and a flood, during which period the merchants were to sell no part of their cargo, it being the duty of one of the sheriffs and the king's chamberlain to board each vessel in the meantime. The two ebbs and a flood expired, and the officials having duly made their purchases or declined to do so, the wine-ship was allowed to lie alongside the wharf, the tons of wine being disposed of under certain regulations, apparently meant as a precaution against picking and choosing, to such merchants as might present themselves as customers, those of London having the priority, and those of Winchester coming next. End quote. The boats were bound to leave London by the end of forty days. Mr. Riley refers to the fondness of the merchants in the Middle Ages for music on board ship, and quotes from Monsieur Michel the following. Quote, en mer saint pénon et dresseront leur voile. Les juglots léans les ébanouant. They put to sea and set their sails. The jongleurs on board amused them. End quote. Another passage from the Roman de Tristan 
quoted by Riley, is also very much to the point. Quote, à son battel, on va à Munt, droit à Londres, dessous le punt. Sa marchandise, il le découvre, ce droit de ses plaies et ouvre. On board his bark, he goes straight to London, beneath the bridge. His merchandise he there shows, his cloths of silk, smooths and opens out. End quote. Mr. Riley gives an interesting account of the localities adjoining the northern banks of the Thames in the 14th century. Quote, the banks of the Thames, from the postern of Petit Wales, near the tower, so far probably as the Friars Preachers, or Blackfriars, near the entrance of the Fleet River, seem to have been intersected in these times by numberless small lanes, which, themselves public property, ran from Thames Street, by the side of a private residence or other edifice, and led to the owner's wharf in front of his dwelling-house. These wharfs again, in some instances, being separated by water-gates, through which apparently the public had a right to claim, as an easement, right of passage. From many of the wharfs there also projected bridges or jetties into the river, for the same purpose as the stairs of modern times. End quote. Many of the wharves on the Thames were known as gates besides Billingsgate, as Ebgate, identical with the present Old Swan Lane and Wharf, Upper Thames Street, and Oystergate, on the site of the north end of the present London Bridge. The latter was the principal place for the sale of shellfish, which was only to be sold, quote, from the way of London Bridge towards the west, unto the corner of the wall of the Church of St. Mary Magdalene. End quote. Oystergate was also a place of great resort for the sellers of rushes, who paid a small rent for their standing. We learn from Fitzstephen that, quote, London formerly had walls and towers in like manner in the south, but that most excellent river the Thames, which abounds with fish, and in which the tide ebbs and flows, runs on that side and has, in a long space of time, washed down, undermined, and subverted the walls in that part. End quote. Whether there were gates or not along the riverfront of London, there can be little doubt that there were not structures at all the places named gates. Many of these were doubtless merely ways. This use of the word gate is common enough in the south, as in Ramsgate, Margate, Sandgate, etc. There appear to have been constant attempts made by the landowners on the Thames to close the lanes leading to the river, thus preventing the free access of the public. Special complaint was made before the mayor and sheriffs in 1360 against the prior of St. John of Jerusalem for closing the right-of-way through the temple. This place, having come into the possession of the Knights Hospitallers of St. John, after the suppression of the Order of Knights Templars. The evidence of John de Hiddingham and eleven others was taken. Quote, Who say upon their oath that time out of mind, the commonalty of the city aforesaid, have been wont to have free ingress and egress with horses and carts from sunrise to sunset, for carrying and carting all manner of victuals and wares, therefrom 
to the water of Thames, and from the said water of Thames to the city aforesaid through the great gate of the Templars, situate within Temple Bar, in the ward aforesaid, in the suburb of London, that the possessors of the temple were wont, and by right ought to maintain a bridge at the water aforesaid, a pier or jetty for landing called Temple Bridge. They say also that the prior of St. John of Jerusalem in England, who is the possessor of the temple aforesaid, molests the citizens of the said city, so that they cannot have their free ingress and egress through the gate aforesaid, as of old they were wont to have. End quote. The prior did not like this interference with his doings on the part of the city, and in 1374 he obtained, from Edward III, a royal order to stay proceedings. The order, addressed to the mayor, recorder, and alderman of London, after recapitulating the terms of complaint, proceeds, quote, We, deeming it not to be consonant with reason that this matter, seeing that it concerns you and the commonalty aforesaid, should be discussed before you, inasmuch as a party ought not to be judge in his own cause. And taking into consideration that if the bridge aforesaid, which has been intended for the advantage and easement of the nobles and others coming to our parliaments and councils, and wishing to reach their barges and boats, these should be broken by the laying of stone and timber thereon, it would be greatly to the prejudice of such persons. And desiring for the reasons aforesaid, that this matter shall be discussed and determined before our council, where justice therein unto you as well as to the prior aforesaid may speedily be done, do command you that you appear before our said council at Westminster on that day, month after Easter day, next to come. End quote. This question of the exclusion of the common people from certain wharves and stairs continued for many years to be a burning one. In 1417, an ordinance of the mayor and alderman was issued forbidding this exclusion, which commences as follows. Quote, Whereas heretofore, and now also from day to day, many persons dwelling in the city and the suburbs of London, more consulting and attending to their private profit and advantage than to the common good and convenience, do hold certain wharves and stairs on the bank of the Thames, which are held by encroachment upon, and are situate on, the common soil and the course of the water, without having any license or paying anything to the community for the same. And then, the same being by favour obtained and colourably appropriated, have mixed up their own and separate soil and land therewith, and what is even worse, from day to day, these persons do make new customs and imposts upon the poor common people, who time out of mind have there fetched and taken up their water, and washed their clothes, and done other things for their own needs, maliciously interfering with them in their said franchise, and demanding and taking from such as resort thereto, from some one halfpenny, and from others one penny, two, or more, by the quarter, to the great injury of all the commonalty, and expressly against the good usages and ancient customs of all the city. End quote. After this preamble, the mayor and aldermen, with the assent of the commons, 
quote, ordained and established for all time to come that no person who dwells on the bank of the Thames or other person whatsoever, having or holding any wharf or stair, situate or encroaching upon the common soil to which there has been or been accustomed to be common resort of the people heretofore for such needs as aforesaid, shall from henceforth disturb, hinder, or molest any one in fetching, drawing, and taking water, or in beating and washing their clothes, or in doing or executing other reasonable things and needs there, or shall demand or take privily or openly from any person any manner of sum or piece of money or other thing whatsoever for custom. End quote. Many of these alleys and lanes were left in a very objectionable condition, but the consideration of their state must be postponed for chapter 7 on the health and sanitation of London. In spite of all the recorded impurities of the streets, the water of the river was pure, as may be proved from the fact that fishing was general. In 1343, an inquisition was held before the mayor and aldermen as to the use of unlawful nets, or those whose meshes were less than two inches wide, when it was found that four nets were good and were to be given back to the owners, and four were false and to be burnt. The custom of the city was that the meshes of the nets should be two inches wide at least, so that small fish could pass through. In the next year, certain fishmongers were appointed inspectors, quote, to make scrutiny as to false nets placed in the water of Thames, from the place called Yanleet, Yantlet, on the east, as far as the bridge of Staines on the west, for taking the small fish to the destruction of the fish of such water, and to bring such nets to the guildhall when found. End quote. In another document, also of the year 1344, Three nets are mentioned by name, all of which were found to be false, and were burnt near the stone cross by the north door of St. Paul's in the high street of Cheap. These were a drainet belonging to the abbot of Stratford, a second net called a codnet belonging to Robert Peasock of Plumstead, and a third net called a kiddle, claimed by no one. A codnet was a net with a cod or pouch containing a stone for sinking the net, also called a purse net, and a kiddle was a net used in kiddles or weirs. There were several different classes of fishermen, as trinkermen, who used trinks or nets attached to posts or anchors for taking fish, and petermen, who used a broom in fishing, beating the bush. There are many other references to the burning of false nets in the city archives. From certain regulations of the year 1388, we learn that, quote, No man shall fish in the Thames with any net but those of the assize ordained at the Guildhall, and that only at the proper seasons, and that no one shall fish near to the wharves in London, between the Temple Bridge and the Tower, within a distance of twenty fathoms. End quote. The Bridge. It is supposed that during the early years of the Roman occupation there was a ferry across from London to Southwark, but that a bridge was built when Roman London had become a place of importance. 
we have already seen that a wooden bridge existed during the Saxon period. This must have been constantly rebuilt, and the last wooden bridge continued for many years after the Norman conquest. The first stone bridge was commenced in the year 1176, under the superintendence of Peter de Colchurch, chaplain of St. Mary Colchurch, a building which stood in the old Jewry until the time of the Great Fire, when it was destroyed. Peter died in 1205, and was buried in the crypt of the chapel built over the centre pier of the bridge and dedicated to St. Thomas of Canterbury. Here, the chaplain's bones were found in 1832, when the old bridge was cleared away after the opening of the new bridge. So little public interest was taken in relics of the past at this time that the bones were sacrilegiously flung into a barge along with the accumulated rubbish and destroyed by careless workmen. The building of the stone bridge was a long operation, and in 1201 King John entrusted its completion to a Frenchman named Isambert. The king seems to have made a careful choice, for the Frenchman had already shown his skill by the erection of fine bridges in the French cities of Saint and La Rochelle. Monsieur Jusserand, in his English Wayfaring Life in the Middle Ages, quotes from the original patent published by Hearn in his edition of the Liber Niger Scacariae. Jusserand also quotes from Hearn as to a series of letters patent relating to the maintenance of the bridge. John ordered certain taxes to be devoted to this purpose, and a patent of Henry III was addressed, quote, to the brothers and chaplains of the chapel of St. Thomas on London Bridge, and to other persons living on the same bridge, end quote, to inform them that the officers of St. Catherine's Hospital by the Tower would receive the revenues and take charge of the repairs of the bridge for five years. After the Battle of Evesham in 1265, when the city was at the king's mercy, Henry III granted his queen the custody of the bridge. Quote, Alianor, by the grace of God, Queen of England, Lady of Ireland, Duchess of Aquitaine, and by our Lord the King Henry, Warden of the Bridge House. End quote. The Queen continued to enjoy the rents and lands belonging to the bridge for nearly six years, during which time the repair of the bridge was neglected. Realizing at length how matters stood, she restored it to the citizens, who, on the 1st of September 1271, elected again their own wardens. Early in the reign of Edward I, 1281, a patent was issued ordering a general collection throughout the kingdom on account of the bad condition of the bridge. A tariff of tolls was also issued, and pontage was exacted from all vessels for the passage of which the drawbridge was raised. One William Cross, a fishmonger, was, quote, sworn to well and faithfully receive all issues of rents of London Bridge, and also all other money accruing to the said bridge from whatever cause, and to expend the same well and faithfully for the use and benefit of the aforesaid bridge. End quote. In the 26th of Edward I, the rents of a house called La Hales were appropriated for the support of London Bridge, and this is recorded in the Liber Customarum. 
It is not known where this house was situated. Riley conjectures that it was a great house in Stocks Market, but Dr. Sharp suggests that it is just as likely to have been one of a large number of houses which Henry Legales, or Whaley's, erected by license of the king, year 10, Edward I, near Old Change and St. Paul's, the profits of which were also devoted to the support of the bridge. A stone was fixed before each of these tenements in token of the duty of the tenants to repair the bridge, but these appear to have been removed, in the same reign, by Walter Hervey, appruator of the city, a title which Riley translated as improver. The bridge was built on piles, and must have been solidly constructed, for although it needed, from the first, a great deal of cobbling, and underwent much alteration, it survived almost to our own day. It consisted of twenty arches, nineteen of stone and one of wood, the drawbridge. By this drawbridge was the tower or storehouse upon which the heads of traitors were set up. This became decayed and was taken down in April 1577. The heads were removed and set on the gate at the bridge foot towards Southwark. On the 28th of August, Sir John Langley, Lord Mayor, laid the first stone of a foundation for a new tower, in the same place, which tower was finished in September 1579. The great wonder of the bridge was the beautiful wooden structure, called Nonsuch House, which stood on the seventh and eighth arches from the Southwark side, and gave its name to the Nonsuch Lock. The great weight of the buildings caused occasional sinkings and a general insecurity. In 1481, it is recorded that a block of buildings toppled over into the river. In 1633, a fire swept from one end of the bridge to the other, and many of the houses were destroyed, which were not rebuilt. In 1757 to 1758, all the remaining houses were cleared away in order to make the structure more secure. The bridge was one of the chief sites of London, and a great deal of history has grown up about it, but it would require a volume to do justice to these circumstances. One of the most curious of these was the duel between Sir David Lindsay, Earl of Crawford, and John Lord Wells, 5th Baron, ambassador at the Scottish court in 1390. Lord Crawford chose the place and, furnished with a safe conduct from Richard II, came from Scotland to London for this special purpose. The duel took place in this apparently inappropriate locality in the presence of a great concourse of sightseers. Most of the travellers in England who have written on the subject speak of the bridge with high praise. Frederick, Duke of Württemberg, who visited this country in 1592, was pleased with what he saw, and his secretary wrote, quote, over the river at London there is a beautiful long bridge, with quite splendid, handsome, and well-built houses, which are occupied by merchants of consequence. Upon one of the towers, nearly in the middle of the bridge, are stuck up about thirty-four heads of persons of distinction, who had, in former times, been condemned and beheaded for creating riots and from other causes. End quote. 
It will be seen from this passage that when the new tower was built, the heads which had been removed during the rebuilding to the bridge foot were taken back to the new tower. Six years later, Hentzner wrote of London Bridge as, quote, A bridge of stone, 800 feet in length, of wonderful work. It is supported upon 20 piers of squared stone, 60 feet high and 30 broad, joined by arches of about 20 feet diameter. The whole is covered on each side with houses, so disposed as to have the appearance of a continued street, not at all of a bridge. End quote. Correr, the Venetian ambassador in 1610, states that the bridge was so narrow that it was very difficult for two coaches meeting to pass each other without danger. Englishmen were not behindhand in singing the praises of the bridge. Thus, Lyly wrote in Euphues and His England, quote, Among all the strange and beautiful shows, methinkest there is none so notable as the bridge which crosseth the Thames, which is in manner of a continual street, well replenished with large and stately houses on both sides, and situate upon twenty arches, whereof each one is made of excellent free stone squared, every one of them being threescore foot in height, and full twenty in distance one from another. End quote. The chapel on the bridge had an endowment for two priests or chaplains, four clerks and other brethren, with certain chantries annexed. A dwelling house was afterwards attached to the chapel, which, at the close of the thirteenth century, was known as the Bridge House. In the year 1298, John de Lewisham, Lewisham, brother of the London, quote, Bridge House, end quote, was made bailiff of the manor of Lewisham, quote, the proceeds of which were then, as they still are, devoted to the maintenance and repair of the bridge, end quote. In the folklore of bridges, the frequent practice in the Middle Ages of building a chapel forms a special feature of the subject. There are several instances still remaining, one of which is the chapel of the old bridge at Bradford-on-Avon. The waterway of the Thames was obstructed by the bridge, which formed a sort of lock to keep the waters in the upper portion of the river. The widest of the arches was 36 feet, and some were too narrow for the passage of boats of any kind. The resistance caused to so large a body of water on the rise and fall of the tide by the contraction of its channel produced a fall or rapid under the bridge. Quote, with the flood tide it was impossible, and with the ebb tide dangerous to pass through or shoot the arches of the bridge. End quote. In the latter case, prudent passengers landed above bridge, generally at the old swan stairs, and walked to some wharf, generally Billingsgate. In 1428, according to Stowe, the Duke of Norfolk was like to be drowned passing from St. Mary Overy Stairs through London Bridge. His barge was overset and thirty persons drowned. In A Chronicle of London, edited by Nicholas, we read, quote, As God would, the Duke himself and two or three other gentlemen, seeing that mischief, leaped upon the piles 
and so were saved through help of them that weren't above the bridge, with casting down of ropes. End quote. Many such accidents were constantly occurring, so that there was probably truth in one of Ray's proverbs. Quote, London Bridge was made for wise men to go over and fools to go under. End quote. That boats were frequently overturned is proved by Norden's view of London Bridge in which boats, bottom upwards, fill the foreground. End of chapter 4. End of section 7. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.